I won't name those law schools in Toronto, where people would like cut pages out of books and like sabotage things and things like that. Is your advice going to be, don't be a dick? Don't be a dick. Tammin. Hello, Michael Spratt. How are you? I'm good. Good. Getting back to the old uh, grind of working life, but uh, it's good. Back to school? Back to school. La rentrée. Packing lunches? Packing lunches, sending the kids to school, working, teaching. Here's my pledge to you. Hit me with it. I'm going to make the kids lunches every day this year. Yeah, right. I'm going to. Well, you, you, you've already missed a couple. Have I? <laughs> yeah. Those are for legitimate reasons. Okay. If you're out of the house because you're on CBC morning radio, you don't have to do it. But every other day I'm doing it. That's fine with by me. It's Absolutely. just easier. Is it? Yeah. You think I make a mess when I make the kids' lunches. You do make a mess. <laughs> like, I come down, it's like, bang, 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 yogurt tube, wrap, this, that, junky thing, junky thing, yeah, junky exactly. thing, junky thing. When you just put crap in their lunches it's a lot faster when i come down you're like making organic yogurt you're like you're like <laughs> i've here's my colony of bees and i'm growing my own honey or whatever <laughs> growing my own honey it's a mess okay so i'm just doing it great i i will take your insult and give you the gift That's of right. making lunches every day are you tired am i ever not tired <laughs> i'm so tired i'm working again my summer of lethargy is over hey but it's actually really good, and it's energizing to be back with the students. Hi, students, if any of you are listening. They know what's hip. They do. They really do. They're young. Yeah. Some of them. They're not all young. Those mature students. There's good mature students in my class. Yeah, I'm all for it. Great. All for it. Um, what else? Not too much, but I think uh, back to school gives us some stuff to talk about that's actually relevant to the podcast. Can we talk about me first? Absolutely. When don't we? I've been doing some stuff. You've been busy. You've been busy, like, you know, shaping policy and shit. Yeah, well, I mean, like, jumping two feet in. So, um, we came back from holiday. Kids went back to school. I went back to court. at the week-long trial in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. Another sex assault trial. I know. They're not fun. No, it's like seven in a row now. I can't handle it anymore. Mm-hmm. You need um, to start finding some, like, tax fraudsters or something to represent. <laughs> take them as they come. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I went back to court and did that. And then um, uh, the Liberals' marijuana bill is before the House of Commons. And I was appearing... Um, what day did I appear on? Was it the second day, day, first day? Yeah, it was the Monday, day. wasn't it? I don't even yeah, know. someday this week. <laughs> but I was up late in typical defense lawyer fashion the night before, writing my written brief. Late. Well, that's... I, I, was it really late? I mean, the day you went to testify... I think it was supposed to be in like a month ago, but well, they didn't turn me away. But they are super strict. Holy crow. Yeah, they're like tight on the page limits and stuff? 
It's five pages. So the bill is 150 pages long. Right. We get 10 minutes to make an opening. Um, and then it, it was it was myself and McClellan, um, the Honorable L. Ann McClellan. Former uh, cabinet minister. Deputy prime minister. Correct. Um, which is a thing. I, I sort of forgot that was a thing. Um, Who's the deputy prime minister right now? Uh, I know who the deputy leader of the opposition is, but I don't know who the deputy prime minister is. Someone? Someone? <laughs> Someone? Um, how about I kill time while you look it up? Okay, say some things. I'm looking it up. So I appeared with uh, Anne McClellan, who um, was uh, authored the uh, Marijuana Task Force recommendations, which were incorporated into the new bill. Um, but we had 10 minutes to make submissions, and then there was two hours uh, in total. So there's about an, uh, an hour and a bit of questioning after all the witnesses made their submissions. Um, but each person only got to submit a five-page brief, and anyone could submit a brief, um, but I felt it was sort of important given the lack of time. But the five-page limit was like the most strictly enforced five pages that I've ever seen. Like, So I submitted five and a half pages. I was told to cut it down, so... I made the margins bigger and shrunk my font and cut out one paragraph. Classic. Students, if you're listening, that is not an acceptable way to get around page No, the page Court limits. of Appeal does not accept that either. No. And then so I resubmitted five pages, but I had a title page with like my name and the date and things like that, which apparently counted as a page, so it got sent back to me and I had to take off that page. So I got my submissions in, up late on um, you know, Sunday night writing it, and then uh, went to testify, which was like slightly bizarre because it's crazy crazy legislation yeah we need to talk about it i don't i just if i could just interject quickly i don't think there is a deputy prime minister currently there's not it's the kind of thing i would expect us to know i just quickly skimmed an article by susan delacorte saying it's not really a thing like there's no no, we don't have a vice president here apparently pierre trudeau started as a thing it's not a thing justin trudeau might end it as a thing anyway about the marijuana bill so Marijuana will uh, soon all be legal, right? I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing I just want to point out to everybody. The government in 2015, when it was uh, campaigning... In third third place, liberals. In third place. Yeah, they talked a big game about how, you know, the NDP is not going far enough with its plan to decriminalize in the interim and look towards legalization. We're going to go all in. We're going to legalize. What has been really bothering me lately is that all of the language they use around their big plan to legalize marijuana and all the rhetoric around it is so prohibitionist. It's like you would think they're actually criminalizing something the way they talk about it. Keep children safe. Keep it out of the hands. Keep it out of organized crime. And like, I'm all for, for me, the the language they were using in the campaign and the language that I think is the appropriate language is taking a public health approach, right? So... Personal autonomy, yeah. Freedom to engage in relatively harmless activities that don't really harm other people if they're legal. Well, and it was well understood, I thought, that most of the harms associated with marijuana stem from its prohibition. And so, obviously, if you're going to legalize it, you have to regulate it. I don't take issue with that at all. But it's just the way they talk about it. And then, of course, relatedly, this week, Ontario also revealed its big plan. And I just, it just doesn't feel the way I expected it to. No, it um, it is an anti-access, pro-gray market. I mean, if you make it difficult and unappealing, inconvenient, 
to purchase marijuana at a large bureaucracy, government-run store, um, people aren't going to go there. The only thing is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that for provinces who don't have a regulatory regime in place by July 1st of this year, uh, no, of next year, (laughs) forgot, it's the fall, um, there will be a mail distribution um, mechanism available to people. Is that going to continue? Is that going to be a national distribution scheme that runs in parallel to the provincial It's all unclear, but what's most important is that we protect our children from this noxious (laughs) substance. Or are you you soft on crime? I'm I'm soft on crime when it comes to the criminalization of marijuana. And, I mean, one of the things they did talk about a lot in the campaign was keeping marijuana away from young people, and they recognized the evidence that shows that currently under prohibition it's early easier for young people to get marijuana than for them to get alcohol but in parallel to that there was a lot of talk quite properly about the harms particularly on young people that stem from prohibition so young people getting criminal records um, and the impacts that that has on them throughout their lives and I am concerned because I understand that there will continue to be a degree of criminalization when it comes to youth maybe you can explain a bit about that yeah so maybe what I'll do is I'll let you know what's going to be legal and not legal okay let's do that so it's going to be legal to possess marijuana and grow marijuana Except, if you're an adult and you possess more than 30 grams in public, you're a criminal. If you're a youth and you possess more than 5 grams of marijuana anywhere, you're a criminal. If you're an 18-year-old and you pass a joint to a 17-year-old, you're a criminal who's trafficking marijuana and, and could be subject to 14 years in jail. If you're an adult and you're growing four plants, that's okay. But if you're growing five plants, you're a criminal. And if you're an adult and you go away for the weekend and your plant grows from 100 centimeters to 101 centimeters, you're a criminal. And it's a criminal offense to possess any illicit marijuana. So that's marijuana from a plant that's 101 centimeters tall. That's marijuana from a plant that is in a group of five in someone's backyard. It's a marijuana um, it, it's at marijuana. Yeah. That's, that's Singular noun. <laughs> that is completely indistinguishable from legal government controlled marijuana so there's it's I think a gross mischaracterization to say that this law legalizes marijuana it does in some circumstances but it leaves it criminal in so many circumstances that many of the positive effects of this bill saving law enforcement money so we can concentrate on you know policing things that actually cause harm Um, keeping marijuana away from kids through diverting funds to education and and regulation or letting people just engage in activities that don't harm anyone other than themselves those are all undercut and perhaps the biggest thing that this bill doesn't do is it doesn't legalize marijuana in any other form than dried cannabis which also cuts against their claim that they want to take a public health approach because you know there is, and, and I, I heard um, uh, one of the task force chairs who was a scientist uh, talking about how there really is no consensus. Like he said, there's no true facts when it comes to marijuana. Every group that had a point of view had legitimate evidence to back what they were saying. So on the question of harm, um, I my 
perspective is that most of the harm flows from prohibition. And to the extent that there's any personal harm, most of it comes from smoking. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, what we know is it's, it's no more dangerous than alcohol or cigarettes, which aren't criminalized to a large extent. Um, no, in fact, they are regulated. But to the extent that there are punishments... Um, for breaching the regulations, they're administrative sanctions. So, it, it, you don't have. I mean, you do have a small number of crimes in relation to um, contraband, alcohol, and tobacco, and the, the possession and sale thereof. Um, but everything else is basically an administrative penalty. Selling to a minor, uh, you don't charge a young person under 19 in Ontario with a criminal offense for if they possess open alcohol and cigarettes. In yeah. So. The problem with the the edibles, um, with um, you know gummies, with brownies, with that sort of thing, um, I think was made really clear when experts from Colorado testified, and when the task force looked at um, the evidence from Colorado and Washington, especially Colorado, which I mean it's always embarrassing when the Americans are leading the way on criminal justice policy and on drug policy, and we're following behind. But in Colorado, what they found was that there was a problem with with edibles. Um, but it was a problem because it wasn't regulated. And what Colorado says is you need to legalize and regulate edibles because if you don't, number one, there's a huge black market. Yeah. If your goal is to drive <coughs> you know, the criminal, uh, the criminal enterprise out of the market, um, if you don't regulate and legalize edibles, there's going to be a huge black market for that because it's one of the most popular and growing forms of consuming cannabis. Um, They also said that it's really important to legalize and regulate it because it can be the most dangerous when it comes to protecting kids because it's the gummies that kids eat, it's the brownies that kids eat, it's the chocolate bars that kids eat, and it's the cookies that kids eat, and that's what you really need to regulate. And they didn't do that at the beginning, and that's when you see some of these news stories come out about you know a kid who ate his parents' you know gummies and had to go to the hospital. That was because there were no regulations. Now there are regulations that in those states where if there's gummies, they need to be in childproof packaging. They need to be resealable. They can't have, you know, um, markings or or packaging that appeals to kids or easily accessed by kids. And if you don't legalize it, you can't regulate it and you can't avoid those harms. And so it really undercuts not only the crime prevention, keeping money out of the hands of kids, but it also um, totally undercuts one of the main talking points on this bill is that it's going to keep kids safe. Yeah, so <clears throat> I don't really get it uh, why they've decided to proceed in this way. Oh, I know. <laughs> Can I tell you a few other <clears throat> bizarre things? Please do. So the other really crazy thing is that for an adult, you can possess as much marijuana as you want in your house. And you can possess up to 30 grams in public. You can grow four plants. And that's, I mean, the the a limitation on the amount you can possess in public. Again, I wouldn't have put it in the criminal code. No, I would have put it in the, exactly. in the administrative, um, in the regulations. But um, Just because it's legalized doesn't mean that it's lawless, right? You can yeah, have rules. Exactly. Just... Just like you can have rules about, you know, not possessing open alcohol outside. But the problem is those rules would have been left to the provinces. And I think the federal government was probably trying to maintain a degree of control on what it sees as the deal breakers. 
I guess so. But what we're left with is it's an adult can possess as much as they want inside their house. They can possess 30 grams in public. A youth can only possess five grams anywhere. And is a youth then charged for the crime? Or yes. is it a ticketable offense? No, it's a crime. Yeah. And so if a youth possesses over five grams anywhere, it's a crime. So we're left with a situation, and this occurs nowhere else in the criminal code, where it's going to be illegal for a young person, a youth, to do something that is legal for an adult to do. And that's nowhere in the criminal code. Quite frankly, the opposite occurs because we realize that youths are different in terms of maturity, in terms of stigma, in terms of lasting impacts of criminal sanctions. So, for example, mandatory minimum sentences that apply to adults, they don't apply to youths. But we're left in this bill where youths will be criminalized for things that will be legal when they're adults. So that means that a 17-year-old walking down the street with five grams of marijuana is committing a crime. His friend who just turned 18 with five grams of marijuana is not committing a crime. Sounds like a charter challenge. Can there be a clearer charter challenge? (laughs) And the rationale for it, the rationale put forward is, well, we need to keep the criminalization of youth so we discourage them. From possessing marijuana. But their whole point was the consequences of criminalizing youth are so profound for them. And not to mention the disproportionate impact on, in particular, racialized youth. And a lot of the the harm mischiefs that the government claimed to want to be getting at, they're basically are going to continue. And if your goal is to prevent youth from having marijuana by criminalizing them more than you criminalize adults... Well, I guess you're just ignoring the last hundred years of the war on drugs and what a failure that has been because we've seen that we have a very high youth use rate right now and it's fully criminal. So, I mean, history is showing that telling a, you know, a 16-year-old kid that possessing marijuana is illegal isn't going to stop them from having marijuana. Was that, um, I don't know if you know this, but did that come out of the recommendation from the task force? Because I know the task force recommended that edibles should be legalized and regulated, and that was not followed. So do you know whether this part of the legislation is... I have to admit, I don't. But can I tell you something crazy that came out of the recommendations that was introduced and was incorporated into this law? Yeah. So if you're growing marijuana at home, you can uh, have a plant up to a meter tall. A meter? Why a meter? <laughs> well, you, you might say, well, would uh, if it just grew one extra centimeter, would that make you a criminal? The answer is yes. <laughs> and so that was a recommendation. And I mean, to the credit uh, of the committee members, there was a question about why is that so? And Anne McClellan answered that question. But they said, if the plant is taller, does that make the pot more potent? And she said, no, not at all. Well, if the plant's taller, does that mean that it produces more marijuana? She says, no, not at all. Actually, you can have smaller plants, if you prune them right, that produce much more marijuana than a taller plant. So I said, well, what's the rationale for making it a criminal offense and having someone sentenced potentially to jail and having the criminal, you know, the weight of the criminal system brought to bear, having police officers carrying rulers around, measuring marijuana, looking into your backyard. She said, well, everyone that we talk to says that, you know, if you have a meter, a meter height restriction, most fences are taller than a meter. So it means that it would be behind a fence and out of view. 
And that means you'd have less people knowing where the marijuana was. You wouldn't have like neighborhood kids like seeing marijuana in your yard and, you know, jumping your fence to, to steal it. And like initially it sounds sort of reasonable until you realize a few things. <laughs> Number one, most fences are over a meter. Most, yes. Number two, there is nothing in this bill about fences. Right, you don't have to keep your marijuana in a Behind fence. Behind a fence. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You can, you can have a transparent fence. You can have a, a chain link fence that you can see through. You can grow the marijuana in your front yard with no fence at all. And so when you look at that, this meter versus meter and one centimeter distinction becomes completely arbitrary and not rationally connected to any purpose whatsoever. And I think completely unconstitutional. Well, remains to be seen, I guess. It will be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Agreed. The other really crazy thing in this bill is that it gives police officers the discretion. In some of those cases where marijuana will still be illegal, um, it gives police officers the discretion to not lay a criminal charge, but to issue you a $200 ticket. Wow, that sounds like a great idea, and we'll surely get at the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on some people versus others based on the <clears throat> color of their skin. Or poverty, size of their wallet, or the fact that they lived in over-policed communities. We already know, and the government has admitted, that the current laws are disproportionately enforced against marginalized, racialized, and vulnerable populations, including young people. So the ability to give someone a ticket, I guess, is well-meaning. But we will be back here in a few years after criminologists have done studies. And we will be saying, geez, isn't it strange that most tickets are given to white middle-class kids and most criminal charges are levied against racialized, impoverished, over-policed communities? We'll be seeing that. But that's not the worst thing of this provision. Hit us with the worst thing. So, again, well-meaning, but completely short-sighted. The legislation says, if you are given a ticket, so if you're the white kid given a ticket, if you pay your fine, um, either when the ticket's given or after you've been convicted, because you can set it down and have a little trial, right? Mm -hmm. There's still that and that protection there. But if you're convicted, even after a trial, if you pay your fine within 30 days, this $200 monetary fine plus victim fine surcharges and court fees, of course. if you pay that within 30 days, the judicial record, so the record of your conviction under this non-criminal ticket system won't be disclosed to anyone. It'll be sealed. That means employers won't get it. That means that we won't share it with the United States, um, so you'll be allowed to cross the border. Um, it means that we won't share it with educational places or vulnerable sector checks, so you'll be able to participate fully in society, and that's a good thing. But if you pay it after 31 days... You get a criminal record. It's <laughs> ridiculous. You get a record. And so that leads to the obvious question. What if you're poor and you can't pay the fine? Oh, that would be the uh, too bad, so sad uh, is the only real answer I can think of to that. That is so stupid basically it's clearly discriminatory it clearly disproportionately impacts the poor and it clearly operates against the people that probably need their records sealed the most people that already have stigma and disadvantage and barriers to employment just because you're poor and you can't you don't have a job it means that we're going to release your record so that you can't get a job or cross the border it's irrational 
like much of this bill is. And I don't care for that. No, and it, I mean, this is the result of legislation that is introduced in the most grudging manner. Um, and I mean, like, quite frankly, it's, so I said to the committee, it's good that we're doing this. It's good that you're taking these measures because it's better than nothing, right? Yeah. But it's bad for a few reasons. The United States, their experience, they say you need to be nimble. You need to be able to react to situations. They, for example, saw the problem with edibles and were able to correct that very quickly. The government's plan is to correct things through further legislation later on. And regulations. They say that they're working on the regulations for edibles. Which is not nimble, which is not able to respond quickly to things. And the fact that this is a bill born of political cowardice. I mean, the government made a promise when they were in third place. They're only fulfilling this promise because they've broken so many others. If they could get away with breaking this one, I'm sure they would love to. But at the end of the day, we have an irrational piece of legislation that operates in a discriminatory manner against the youth and against poor people. It doesn't provide the benefits of reducing police presence or having appropriate regulations to protect children. And, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a cowardly piece of political legislation to ensure that they're not seen to break a promise, but also to make sure that they're somewhat immune from tax attacks from their political counterparts and, you know, the regressive and closed-minded people in our society who view all harm-reducing public health, personal choice measures as soft on crime. And that's what this is. Yeah, and, you know, I'm in the camp of people who feels that this process has been taking too long, that I think this bill should have been introduced a long time ago. Um, Again, not to sound like a total partisan, but just to go back to 2015, the NDP had said immediately decriminalize and then take the time to come out with thoughtful legislation. The Liberals have created a real mess by keeping it completely illegal until such time as they can, you know, roll out their their legislation. But then I do sort of feel for the provinces because it is such a sloppy bill and it does leave a lot to the provinces, as in part because it has to due to the division of powers under the Constitution. But um, it just seems to me that now there's a real risk that this is a complete debacle, which would be very unfortunate because it will play right into the hands of those people that you just described who are already against this. They're looking for a reason to to say this is a failure. Yeah, and then the consequences of failure are not trivial. I mean, we've already talked about the harms associated, associated with prohibition. That's one of the reasons that it's so unfair that it remains illegal because they claim to care about these people. And meanwhile, they're still out there being targeted by police. So... I just think it's it's a real possibility of a lose-lose. Uh, hopefully I'm proved wrong. Hopefully the provinces step up and they're able to salvage something out of this and create Ontario a regulatory... Ontario hasn't. I well, mean, the, the best commentary that I've heard is that Ontario is trying to be the first drug dealer ever to actually lose money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, their bill's not passed yet, so maybe they'll see the light and have some amendments. And maybe there'll be an election up. before the bill's passed and we can actually yeah, get a good there's bill. that too. I mean, the other thing that I'll say is this. Um, I think you're right that the NDP position of decriminalization, gradual sort of evidence-based legalization of working towards things has all the advantages of allowing you to look at other people's experience and minimizing harms. And this bill doesn't talk about pardons or amnesty. I mean, I pity the poor person 
who is charged with a marijuana offense because it happens thousands of times a year that people are charged with possessing small amounts of marijuana. It still happens. It's a misnomer to say that it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I pity the poor person who is charged under the old law the day before this new law comes into effect and has to wait five years to apply for a pardon because this bill does nothing. It does nothing to address the people who were charged you know, while we're waiting for legalization. It does nothing to change, and admittedly, this is a bit of an issue I have since I did a constitutional challenge against retrospective pardon increases. It does nothing to cure the constitutional imbalance in the pardon law that we have, where we have different pardon laws in BC and Ontario than the unconstitutional laws that still apply everywhere else. It does nothing to roll back um, these pardon limits, and it does nothing to expedite, subsidize pardons for people who were convicted of simple possession of marijuana, something that's now legal. And I think, I mean, if you want to be cynical, the reason why it doesn't do that, the reason why it doesn't include pardons, the reason why we haven't talked about decriminalization while we wait for this bill isn't because it's a bad policy. It's because the liberal govern the liberals, when they were in third place when it was an election, needed a wedge to distinguish themselves from the NDP. So they said the NDP isn't being liberal enough. They're not being open enough. They're not being progressive enough. And look at us. They say decriminalization. We say full legalization. And we say that because we're polling like shit and in third place. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's the Hail Mary. And it distinguishes us from other parties on the left. And lo and behold, they're elected. And this is what we get. Yeah. And it's unsatisfactory just quickly on the pardon thing because this is something i talked about a bit with my students this week is i'm i count myself among the people who favor um pardons for people who have been convicted of simple possession of marijuana but um we did talk about and i think this is valid in a lot of contexts but probably not this one how there's something to be said for you know the rule of law and not wanting to send the message to people that you can sort of pick and choose which laws you follow and hope that one day uh, the government will change its mind and it won't be legal and Ill- illegal anymore. There's something to be said for, um, you know, as a as a component of upholding the rule of law, expecting people, even when you think that the law is unfair, you're still bound by it and you can take action to try to change it. The problem is that because in the context of this particular offense, there is so much evidence that the harms of the criminal record so far outweigh the harm associated with the act um, that I think this would be a case where it would be appropriate to seriously consider. And it's just the the being so dismissive of that, I think, is really unfortunate. It's the same with how really dismissive the prime minister and the parliamentary secretary to the minister of justice have been about the idea of at least contemplating the decriminalization of possession of other drugs, which seems to be um, something that experts really do um, do recommend if you do want to be taking a harm reduction, public health type approach. So, which they don't have to do it, but the fact that they're so close-minded to even the idea of it, I think is part of my just general feeling that they're, they still have a, a completely prohibitionist attitude. And basically what they want is like, the status quo but tweaked so it's like so that they can say like you said that they that they've kept their promise so that's just really disappointing yeah so it um it was interesting because i mean i the sense i got is that you had some members of the government on the committee who were more progressive than the legislation for all the reasons that we've said you have some people on that committee 
who uh, were very from the government who are very risk adverse, like Bill Blair, who is in charge of this file, who is a police officer for what a thousand years? I think he's that old. <laughs> Um, and arrested and enforced these laws and is very risk-adverse. That's who's in charge of this. Then you had, like, the NDP on the committee who wanted to go farther and the conservatives who, I don't know if they know what they want because they're small government, they're libertarian, but they're (laughs) tough on crime and don't like marijuana. But they do like pardons because, um, if you remember, before the rules were changed about the wheat board, there was a bunch of farmers who flouted the law and flouted that law. Um, and when the law changed, Stephen Harper granted them pardons. Look at that. One thing we haven't talked about is you keep mentioning that you were before the committee. But what's interesting is that you were not before a committee that deals with justice matters. No, it was before the health committee. Which, you know, to me, again, is probably as much branding as anything else because they've said public health, public health, it's a health approach. But, you know, a lot of the measures that you've talked about, the height of the plant and other things, really don't speak to health. And there is yeah. a significant amount of criminalization in this, this is bill. A, this is a criminal law bill. It's a totally cr- a criminal law bill. I mean, they would say, well, because we're legalizing it, we're taking it outside of the criminal law. But that's just simply not borne out by the bill they've drafted. No, the bill is about criminal law and about packaging and commerce. So, I mean, there's health benefits, but it's not a health bill. Very foolish. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, that's a long way to say that I testified on that bill. Um, you can see my submissions on uh, on the, my website, michaelspratt.com. <laughs> I really wish, in retrospect, that I had chosen a different uh, <laughs> URL for that. A catchier name for the catchier site. Catchier things. I didn't have to say my name. Um, but I posted a copy of my submissions there. Um, and I also really embarrassingly, I don't know why I did this. I got the clip of my opening statement to the committee, which I actually made like a YouTube channel for myself because I'm a YouTuber now. You're a YouTuber. Just Our like children kids will be so be. impressed. Um, but you can see me testify and... Um, for anyone listening who's interested in watching these committee hearings, the setup that they have on the website, it's parleyview.ca, you can find it pretty easily online, is amazing. Like the minute that the committee hearing ends, you can rewind, watch it, and you can clip, edit, and download portions of, of that video. And so you can share it on you know Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. That's great. It's it's a really good resource for uh, those people who are politically nerdy and technologically savvy. Good for you. Good I know for you. You can watch the clip of Anne McClellan uh, insinuating that uh, I eat too many pop brownies. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's what I did, um, and a bunch of other stuff too. But it's mostly, good. Mostly that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. It was, uh, thank you for uh, putting the kids to bed while I went to work and uh, pulled an all-nighter on those submissions. Happy to do it. So, it's also back to school. Yes, as we noted. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, first-year law students. That's right. And we we know that we have law students that listen to the podcast. So we thought it might be appropriate to just take a minute to give our kind of tips to the incoming class, the 1Ls as they're now known, because apparently we've adopted a completely American 
In our days, it was an LLB and it was called First Year, but I know, now it's you're a JD. One L, and fucking JD. One L. Like, give me a break. Whatever. You're not at Harvard, people. Yeah. <laughs> Nor do you want to be. No, you're at the University of Ottawa if you're lucky. Um, yeah, so we just thought we might just take a minute. Um, Mike and I uh, went to law school at Dalhousie. We met when we, we met were in law young. One L. Funny story. <laughs> it's not a funny story. We're not talking about it anymore. You have just completely distorted our origin story. Um, I know you had a crush on me because you called and left a message to ask me on a date and you said, oh, hi, Emily. Um, this is Mike from law school. So you can tell your story, which but is untrue. when we were looking through all the pictures that predate our relationship, I just happened to be in every one of them. I'm nodding my head. Ooh. No. Do you remember? So do you remember the first uh, date that we had where I invited you over to watch a TV show? Oh yeah, it was the um, it was the the Pierre Trudeau biography. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were nerdy even back then. Uh, and I was too scared to hold your hand. And then after that <laughs> is when I called you. So you'd been over to my house to not only watch part one but part two of the Pierre Trudeau biography. I think the phone call was before that. No, no. And then the call was after, where I thought you might not know my name. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah, love. Awkwardness. Adorable. Awkwardness. Anyway, all that being said, we were law students once too, so we thought we would just give a couple of our tips to the incoming class. And um, one of us was a very successful law student. <laughs> it was me. I, uh, I got a higher mark than you in Archie Kaiser's Crim Pro class. You a did. A plus over here. You got an A plus. I only got a measly A. It's uh, true. Let's not talk about the rest of those marks. Yes, but I did get an A plus in first year criminal law. What did you get? I actually got the prize. Just yes, saying. yes, yes. Anyway, uh, digressing from that, couple things to think about when you're starting first year. Yeah, some tips. First thing is, I'm really jealous because law school is awesome. It is just such an opportunity to really expand your knowledge in a lot of different areas. And I actually remember when I finished law school, my mom making a comment to me about how you'll never know more law than you do right now. Because it's quite amazing how little I now recall about uh, things like family law, uh, employment law. Civil law. Yes. Torts. I don't need no. No. We happen to work in a particularly specialized area, criminal law. But um, anyway, my point being is have fun. There are so many ways that you can have fun in law school. There is the social side and the intellectual side. So for me, coming back to teaching last year, I was reminded about all the amazing speakers that are on campus and all the opportunities for dialogue and exchange. And so take advantage of those, get involved in some extracurriculars, but also make sure to make time for yourself and to have fun. You're just your combining classmates. like our top five tips all in one thing. You just no, blew the wad there. I didn't. So I think you're right. I think... You're never going to have a better opportunity to hear speakers, to engage with like professors who are at the top of their field. Like I'm just looking at the people you teach with at Ottawa U. Some pretty smart people. Pretty smart people. And the neat thing about law school that I think already the students are, tr- are starting to see is that at least compared to my experience in a very large undergraduate um, program, is that you you do have quite a bit more access to your professors, and so you should take advantage of that, Um, not in a strategic way, but just build those relationships, not just because you want a reference letter one day, but also because your professors are a great source of career advice and mentorship. um, They're smart and they know stuff you don't know, and I mean, like, they can offer not only, like, 
practical advice, but like on really interesting things. You're looking at Bill C-51, terrorism law. I mean, like at Ottawa U, you have one of the preeminent experts in that area. You're looking at constitutional law. You have that. You're looking at securities law. You have that. Yeah, I mean, and it's like these that are at amazing all law schools. People. So definitely... Is it, is it like that at all law schools? Take other advantage. Other than Dal and Ottawa U? Take advantage, friends. Take advantage. Um, and I think the other thing that you really have to, to look at is... This is probably going to be your last chance for three years to, like, not work. You're going to work in the summer. You're going to work at school. But, I mean, most law students are younger, don't have kids. If you do, I have no idea how you're doing it with kids and law school. I have a student who's about to have his second child, like, any minute. Maybe right now his baby is being born. How, how? I know, and kudos to those students. And, I mean, we do need to acknowledge there are a lot of law students who have part-time jobs. Part-time jobs and stuff like that. But I think that you need to not be all consumed with stuff because the social aspect of law school is really important because if you're going to practice law, and especially if you're going to practice litigation... The social aspect of litigation is really, really important. How you interact with judges, how you interact with crowns, how you interact with people who have very different and opposing views as you. Um, this is a place where you can engage with smart, fun people. And I think law students uh, know how to have fun, too. It's true. And it can become very overwhelming and consuming. And so it's. I just think it's really important to kind of make that time. And also to... I don't want to be a downer here, but like it doesn't get easier after law school. It it gets harder in terms of the hours expectation and the output expectation. In fact, I remember my mom saying to me at one point, um, I think in law school would be the best time to have a baby. You know, when I was thinking about the timing of when to have, you know, a child, she said, in law school, if you think about it, you have a lot of flexibility in your hours compared to when you're working, because although you have a lot of work to do, a lot of it is done at home or at the library. Uh, in terms of the, the set hours where you have to be at a particular place. Anyway, I just thought it was so interesting because at that time, having just finished law school, I thought, that's crazy. I didn't know your mom wanted me to have a baby with you in law school. <laughs> Why do you have to go there? Why? Anyway. Okay, so, next tip. I got yeah, a tip. go. Okay. Um, law school's hard. The easiest way to make it less hard, well, there's two ways. You got to read all the stuff that you're given to read. All of it. And I remember looking back on it where you're like, holy crap, I've got 50 pages of cases to read and stuff like that. That's nothing. Yeah, read it. Nothing. You'll get faster at it. you got to read it. And then the best way to do it, and I am not a study group person. I am not a like collaborative learning person. I don't generally like that. But I think you have to. Um, and not necessarily to quiz each other, but just to sort of, like we're doing now, talk about stuff. Because... The law is not black and white. There's no right answer. You have to talk about it and reason it out. And the best way to do that is with other people. And I think you can sometimes overestimate the level of your comprehension when you're just listening and reading exclusively. You sit there in class and you say, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But to sit down with someone else and attempt to articulate it to them, I think is helpful in a lot of different ways. It, it helps you to, I think, improve your skills of thinking like a lawyer. The better you can talk like a lawyer, the better you can write like a lawyer. So I think it the value added to, and, and I agree with you, when I was an undergrad, I did not study in a study group. But I think for law school, it's very valuable. It can just be one other person even, but it's worthwhile. And don't wait until you're studying for exams. 
because I think by doing that early on and engaging with your classmates and trying to just summarize for each other some of the, it's not really quizzing. It's more just, you know, after the lecture, sit down for 20 minutes and summarize what was discussed. Because go have a beer and talk about go it. Go have a beer because that's when you're going to identify gaps in your understanding. Yeah. And hopefully your classmate gets it and can help you understand it. But if not, that's your opportunity to go and follow up and ask questions. So I think it's it's a really good idea uh, to try to do that if you can. I know it's limiting for some people, again, who do have family obligations or other things. But even just an hour in the atrium or the, lo- or the library uh, a couple of times a week, I think, would be really worthwhile. And if you don't have a study group, if you're you know remote, if you're at home, if you have other obligations explain it to someone else like sit down with someone who's not in law school and talk about these like broad high level concepts with them and by trying to explain it to someone else if you can do that you've probably got it down and that's actually really good advice because really the gift of an effective advocate is someone who can you know talk to me like I'm a (laughs) four-year-old in the sense of you know if you can make a non-lawyer understand it then you've really accomplished something all right so I've got uh, another one okay you have to get out of the classroom and yes. I don't just mean, you know, going to the law school bar. And not just to the gym. No. Um, what you should do is you should go to court. Um, I mean, you don't know if you're going to be a litigator. You don't know if you're going to be a securities ex- expert. I mean, the people that piss me off the most in law school are the people who in like the second week of law school say how they like, I'm going to be an environmental lawyer or I'm going to be an IP lawyer. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what skills you're going to need. You don't know what area of law you're going to fall in love with because you don't know anything about it yet. But what you should do is you should go to court because even if you're not a litigator, um, it's useful to see how things actually play out. It's really important. I think in Ottawa, there can be a real temptation, I think also because most law professors are academics, to go to the Supreme Court, which you definitely should do. Go to the Supreme Court. Why not? If you happen to be studying in Ottawa, great. But really going to a trial court, and in particular in the provincial court, is where I think you get a really important perspective on what justice really looks like. And for my first year criminal law students, they have an assignment that requires them to go to court several times, observe a lot of different types of proceedings, and then write about them. And last year I was really struck by how many of them were just kind of shocked by how sad it was and how you know disheveled the people were and how even the defense lawyers at times sorry Mike what? <laughs> unshaven uh, wrinkled suits but but seriously I think it's really important and I think that can help you you know refine your ideas about what it is you want to do and I mean and if you're looking at making connections with lawyers if you're just looking at it from like a predatory careers perspective those are how you make connections. You're in court. You get noticed. People talk to you. You talk to especially lawyers at court. You know, if they're sitting around having a coffee, lawyers like to talk and they'll talk to you. They like to talk. And it's a very collegial profession where people do take seriously the responsibility for mentorship and stuff. And I did tell my students, when you go to court, go in at the break, go and talk to the lawyers, get some more context. You missed the beginning, go and talk to them. And people will always nine times out of ten, nine and a half times out of ten, will take a minute. And uh, that was something that I know my students last year found really striking. So don't be shy. Approach people at the courthouse. Talk to the court clerk, but like not in a really, really busy plea court. No. <laughs> but if you're I in mean, a trial. When we were in New York, that's how I found out where to go when I went and visited like the, the New York trial courts, right? I found them a young, disheveled-looking guy in a suit. And I said, hey, are you a defense lawyer? And he said, yes. And that's how they're going to answer. They're going to say yes, because they're not sure if you're a crazy person coming yeah. up and talking to them or if you're someone. I said, you know, 
where can I go to see some action here, right? Like, where can I go see a trial? And he told me what courtroom to go to, and I went there. So I think you should do that. And I also think that you should be involved extracurricularly. Like, I wasn't. I didn't do that much stuff. But I think that you should volunteer at, like, the legal clinic, that you should, you know, volunteer at other community non-legal organizations as well. I think that's really important. Lawyers have a really good tradition of giving their time, giving their money, giving their efforts. And it doesn't need to be legal. It can be anything that connects you with the community. And that includes reading the local newspaper, reading about cases in court, tuning into Parliament and seeing what's going on, seeing what new legislation there is. Because I think there's an obligation when you're a lawyer and an obligation in law school to be well-versed enough in these aspects of the law to have conversations with people who aren't involved with the law so you can demystify and explain the system and, and help educate people about you know this profession that you're going to enter into in one way or another. Big one. Uh, I have one. Uh, take the opportunity to do a moot, uh, take a trial advocacy course, volunteer at a clinic, anything that you can do that gets you on your feet either in a real court or simulating being in a real court because you're right not everyone will be a litigator but there is a significant I think number of students who don't think they would like litigation don't think they have the temperament for it think they're shy um, but actually will find that it is really challenging in a good way and very rewarding and exhilarating and exciting and it also is just a way to determine one way or the other whether that is a path that you want to go down and if you want to be a solicitor, that's fine. Some people are crazy. If you want to sit behind <laughs> a desk and review documents and like push money around, that's great. But things go south, right? Like if you screw up, probably your file's going to end up in court. So best you know how that's going to look. That's right. And I also know that um, the advice that Justice Binney used to always give, who is the former Supreme Court judge that I clerked for, was that when it comes to litigation, you can really only get experience by, you can only really learn by doing it. And you, the way you learn is by making mistakes. And it's better to make those mistakes when you're young and people have low or no expectations of you than to find yourself as a lawyer who's been called to the bar for five years and has only done one small claims trial because you're in some gigantic national civil litigation firm. So, um, you know, when you're a student and you do moots and stuff, it, it can be mortifying. Like you may embarrass yourself. But better now than when you're a grown-up lawyer and uh, you, people expect you to know better. So it's a really, really great way to learn some of those lessons while you're at this stage of your career. Yeah, I remember as an uh, articling student in Toronto, um, I didn't get the job I wanted in Toronto. That was stolen. Stolen from me. By Howard Krongold. By my partner, Howard Krongold, <laughs> who's now one of the best appellate counsels. He got a job at uh, with Brian Greenspan, who... I mean, as a renowned criminal lawyer, and he only took that job because you stole his job at the Court of Appeal. <laughs> well, so friends. thanks a lot for that. Um, but I remember how he asked, asked Brian Greenspan at one point, geez, how did you get so good at what you do? Because he was amazing. And Brian's answer was, a lot of people went to jail for a long time <laughs> for me to get this good. Because yeah. you're going to make mistakes, and it's better to watch other people make those mistakes and learn from it rather than make those mistakes yourself. Agreed. Um, so you think they're, they're going to survive the year, these students? I think they're going to survive. They're at a really 
great stage of unbridled enthusiasm. Like they come to class and say, I really enjoyed the readings. I don't think that will necessarily be maintained in perpetuity, but um, I'm excited that they're... The rule against perpetuity? Yes, whatever that is, because we learned about it in Parapetula. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be a good year. It looks like a great crop, and I'm sure it is at all the other law schools too. So uh, good luck to all of you. You can do it. You've got this. Oh, I've got one more. I'm jealous. I've got one more that I think is really important because remember... I was kind of summing up there, but go ahead. And yeah, yeah, no. I'm, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, no, you're not. I'm you're circling not. back. I'm okay, circling back, back because this was good. Do you remember when we went to law school at Dal, how it was like collegial and good? And then we heard stories about like people at other law schools. I won't name those law schools in Toronto where people would like cut pages out of books and like sabotage things and things like is that. Is your advice going to be don't be a dick? Don't be a dick. Yeah, it's true because, again, you will do better if you're sharing and people are sharing with you. The, the more you can take opportunities to collaborate, honestly, it's an open book exam. Now, despite that, though, I guess relatedly, I would say make your own summaries. You can look at other people's summaries. You can use them as a template if you want. But in the same way that you can kind of nod and go, oh, yeah, I understand, I understand. If you haven't written it yourself... I really don't think it gets imprinted in your brain in the same way. Yeah, but I think the older I get and the less competitive maybe I am, the don't be a dick thing I think is really important because even if you're a completely selfish dick, if your friends and if your colleagues and if people who you know do better and you help them do better, that's ultimately going to help you in the long run. And there is nothing worse than someone who thinks they know a lot and is a dick. Yeah, and actually it it sort of ties back into something that I'm sure all first-year law students have already heard in the course of their orientation and everything else, but you'll hear this a lot in the legal profession because it's true. Your reputation follows you everywhere, and it starts right now in first-year law school. If your classmates think you're that dick, when you're a practicing lawyer and they're up against you, they're going to be thinking, ugh, that's that dick from law school who wouldn't share anything. So, you know, and, and I think you really, really have to keep that in mind. You have to be courteous and professional and respectful because... When people don't like you, you're trying to negotiate with people, right? Like as a criminal defense lawyer, you're not going to be a hardcore adversary to every crown attorney that you ever encounter. Because no, you- and especially in the civil practice when it's you know civil lawyer against civil lawyer. And I think that that is all the more important right now in sort of the social media context. I mean, I can't imagine how how brutal it might have been if there was like Twitter and stuff like that when we were in law school. I mean, you got to be careful what you say, what you do. It follows you everywhere. And if uh, if you got a big D written on your forehead, that's sort of hard to shake. Agreed. A uh, child's calling, eh? A child is calling, so we need to shut this down. All right. So um, let's uh, put a bow on that. Okay. Good luck, everyone. Don't fail. Don't fail. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more uh, at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M. Spratt. Thanks for listening.